You are listening to Psychology Inside Out podcast. Here, we interview researchers, educators, and fellow students about their personal and professional experience with mental health. In today's episode, we talk with one of our colleagues, Claire Smith. Claire shared some of her experience with self-harm and her journey into psychology. The content of this episode is not intended to substitute professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode may be sensitive to some individuals. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or a qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Welcome back to our podcast. Today I'm here with Eugenia. Hi, Eugenia. Hello. And our guest today is Claire Smith. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. So Claire is one of our friends here from the University. She's also in the psychology program. And today she will share a little bit about her experience with self-harm. Before we start, I know that she would like to say some words about that. So if you'd like to start and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Claire, as Anna said, um, and I also study with them. I'm half American, half German. And I'm here just to share a little bit of my personal experience and what I find important for people to know about self-harm because it's such a sensitive and hidden topic. Um, I just want to also highlight the fact that I'm in no way condoning or glamorizing self-harm. I am a testament to how destructive I feel it is. And it breaks friendships and creates distress in families and is a really long lasting problem. I also am in no way an expert and I'm just sharing my personal experience and what I find important for people to know because people don't like to ask questions. So we're here to have an open conversation. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for being open about it. Yeah, Yeah, this is a sensitive topic. I don't think a lot of people talk about it. Yeah, so I think, well, in a nutshell, self-harm is basically when you hurt yourself to deal with the negative feelings, emotions. Yeah, it's it can come in many different forms, actually, and not just the traditional is what people see teenagers cutting themselves. There's, it's a big spectrum as well. There's um, like hitting, just putting yourself in danger, risky situations, abusing drugs and alcohol, uh, burning, um, bloodletting, eating disorders. It's all kind of under the spectrum. It's destructive ways people use to cope with pain, yeah, negative emotions. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a symptom, we would say, like, well, something more underlying a bigger problem. Yeah, and actually also uh, it was not uh, a diagnosis by itself mm-hmm. uh, until recently, until DSM-5 came. And um, they included in DSM-5, now it is a non-suicidal self-injury disorder, if it's so-called, mm-hmm. but again, it can be part of another diagnosis, like very often they say part of the borderline, for instance, uh, personality disorder, for example, or people can do it for different reasons. Um, but yeah, maybe let's just talk a little bit more about your story, uh, Claire, and maybe uh, um, if you can share, um, if you remember when it started and why. Yeah, so I've been having a lot of depressive thoughts since I was 12. It really kind of began as more of an existential thinking about um, the meaning of life and or more the nihilistic non-meaning. And you know, as a middle schooler that really consumes your mind and makes you very distressed. And I 
felt a lot of emotions and had a lot of thoughts I didn't feel like I could control. So then I just uh, started cutting myself then. And it just, from then on, was an on and off. Um, there was maybe a year period of time where I didn't and then continued after that. And from then it was just a lot of uh, blocks of time, recovering, relapsing, and it would it is now still going to be like any addiction, a constant issue that I feel like will be brought up in some way, especially with the long lasting effects on my body. But it's just always something since I was 12, I feel like is haunting me in some way. And long last effects on your body, you mean? Well, scarring. yeah, scarring and things like that. And um, although I am very lucky in the fact that I don't have a lot of obvious scarring because I was very much hiding my self-harm in places that people wouldn't see, I still, it is still a paranoia of going to the beach or things like that because um, I have a lot on my thighs. And it's also just still when you're friends with somebody, they see things and it will always be a conversation brought up. Any relationship, friendship, it'll always be kind of something that I'm going to have to share and talk about at some point. But people ask directly, what is this? What happened? Or it's yeah. more like a sudden hint. Well, it was a lot more in high school. I feel really lucky now that I'm able to share my experience on my own because in high school, people saw me really going through it and seeing um, a lot of fresh wounds mm -hmm. and now it's something that I can bring up myself and also people grow older and they have they uh, ask less invasive questions right. and I can talk to my friends about it at my own time but it is something that still there will be times where people notice and try to have a conversation mm -hmm. with me about it and I'm curious because I know there's a, a strong online community about that around it did you have that before you started or that was something that initiated by yourself completely and and then maybe you engaged online with other people yeah so I, I had a big online presence um, within that community but that only developed afterwards actually a couple years into it because mm -hmm. as because this topic is so taboo you're going to want to find people who want to talk to you about it because mm -hmm. nobody wants to talk about it so you go online and you find communities. I was big on Reddit and it can become a toxic cycle. I was definitely in a more safe space where it was about overtly about stopping, but there's always something underlying where you feel the competition. Investigating. Exactly. And it was, um, or sharing tips, but also very overtly, um, it was supposed to be helping, but it was also a, a picture community. Mm -hmm. So it's when you're seeing things, obviously that can bring up emotions and you can compare yourself. If, yeah. So it's actually also in the sense not helping, but maybe stimulating. stimulating you to make even more harm to yourself or something like that, or like how you were relating to it, like, yeah, how you're feeling about it. Yeah, it's definitely like a complex issue for me because I was a part of this community for so long that I feel some sort of connection to it. I made friends throughout it. Like superstar. And, <laughs> no, 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 I sorry. mean, it was more just that, you know, you connect with people and you feel their pain and you, you see people also go through 
suicide and things like that. So I was very attached to it and it got banned actually from Reddit because it was, you're showing graphic content. Mm -hmm. um, but then they moved to Discord and then another and then another. So I still feel this kind of loss of this community and the people that I connected with. But in general, it was for me personally, more of a toxic community, especially because everything is the most extreme there. You're not seeing your average person there. You're seeing people who are definitely needing stitches and serious medical attention. Um, and as a young person, you're also seeing extremely graphic things and you're learning things that you probably shouldn't have. Like there is language and lingo in this community of the depth that you hurt yourself. There's, um, and signs and, and then I recently looked back at some of my posts and then if I would post something at the bottom, I'd be like, yeah, but this is not extreme enough. I need, mm -hmm. or how, or how do I know when I hit this certain level that everybody is talking about? So it definitely for me was more of a toxic experience. Um, but now in somewhat, I'm grateful to have all of these because I also did written posts. I have a whole log of my middle school and high school life. And it's really like a testament to how far I've come and all these different moments in my life recorded mm -hmm. on the internet. Yeah, you mentioned that you also like wrote a book together with your partner, right? Yeah. Yes, I, um, I have a lot of why this was so important to me to be on the podcast as well is because I really always felt it was so misunderstood and I wanted to share. So I, I had like diary entries, I wrote articles um, specifically about the online community and this balance that if it's helping or hurting. And I also wrote a book when I was 13 with two of my friends. One of them I then began dating and he also had uh, anxiety and depression. And it's to see the lens of a middle schooler going through these things. And I mean, with grammatical errors and all this stuff that like, and really childish language to talk about things that are really deep and dark. Mm -hmm. It's very much like a lens into how young people deal with really dark shit. Yeah, I think that's important to get published because <laughs> a lot of people, it's, it's something so taboo. You see people with like scars and things, but you never then approach and you don't really know what that person is going through. So I think relating to someone's experience is very important, especially in such a young age, because these people are kids, you know, like 12, 13, what age was it for you? That started? Uh, 12, 12, yeah. yeah. And then I think really young, yeah. 13, 14, and then it became like a whole big thing also with the school as well, because when you're young, you're not thinking about it either. You're not meticulously deciding. Uh, it's more of an impulsive decision. You're not hiding anything because you don't understand it. Yeah. And then, so it became a thing with the school and the counselors. And then from then on, it just always got brought up over and over again. Mm -hmm. And those feelings is something that you never shared with nobody before. You were struggling with, or did you try to seek in or to talk to your sister or someone around you? Or it was just something very much inside of you? It was definitely more these two friends that I had. And they were definitely not um, instigating or toxic in any type of way. Very empathetic people and um, more just trying to understand my experience. But I never 
even consider talking to my family or anybody outside of this small friend group. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, I'm thinking about when we would have a group chat called Depression O'Clock. And I'm thinking this is such a like middle schooler child thing. We're all depressed and we have like this fun group chat we write in about our feelings. Wow. And everyone was expressing it differently, right? And uh, living it differently and you like shared yeah. your, mm-hmm. your experience. Mm-hmm. Our families. It's very interesting to think that we deal with this type of thoughts from a very young age, I think in different levels, obviously. But we don't talk about that in school or anywhere else, like what to do about feelings and this type of thoughts. I think that's something that would be very would be very helpful to have in schools because they do have like counselors and things like that but did you feel safe at all to talk to any adults at that time well um as i said the school did find out about it on Mm -hmm. multiple occasions it was brought up either by friends or seen by teachers and i did go to the school counselor and it absolutely not (laughs) the school counselor was very unqualified for Mm -hmm. dealing with these issues Um, I had a couple meetings with her, but even then how she talked about it, and I might get into this later about all of the things not to do. (laughs) She crossed off all of them on the list. I mean, most people don't even want to say the word self-harm or cutting or injury. They motion it with their hands or things like that. She actually did that. And it was very just disconnected Mm -hmm. and non-empathetic. And then from there, I was just go to a therapist. Not really our problem anymore. And uh, or I had to go to the school nurse once in a while, check up. You doing anything? Can I wrap anything up for you? That's about it. Uh, I wasn't allowed to, or teachers were made aware. So holding sharp objects was something that, you know, cutting scissors, uh, cutting paper with scissors. Not clear, not clear. Yeah, are you doing okay? What's going on? And then that obviously isolates you as well and makes it really like for your peers as well. Yeah, even worse. Yeah, Yeah. it's even worse. And because it was so open in the school, I got, it got worse because of all the bullying Mm -hmm. and all the quote unquote attention it got. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also in PE class, I have uh, scars on my shoulder. I had to wear long sleeves or um, because it's all under my watch and I had to take the watch off for PE also long sleeves. Um, because they thought it was contagious so Mm -hmm. it was very much just like hide push you off to therapy and hide all the objects Mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about the therapy so you said that counselor sent it uh, sent you there right so not your parents it's not was not your decision right so they basically pushed you there yeah there were um, multiple incidents so the first incident um i was recommended to therapy, specifically family therapy, because my um, parents were going through a divorce Mm -hmm. as well, or more of a separation. And that never ended up happening, which I felt like would have been really important, um, maybe not for me, but for them especially. And then afterwards, when it was brought up again as a reoccurring issue, um, my mom was just like, okay, I think we have to send her therapy and it was suggested by the school uh, a therapist from the school as well they suggested I saw um, two different therapists one of them 
was German and I felt like I couldn't express myself um, German. in German because I mean, although you can, I can speak it, the language is not there and there's a barrier. And yeah, there is half German, Maybe by the way. Maybe we need to, yes. yeah, some side <laughs> so notes. Just, yeah, where are you from? Let's go back a little <laughs> yeah, bit. Yeah, just to so yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah. So I'm half German, half American. I was born in the US and then moved when I was eight to Germany, but my mother's German, my dad's American, and I went to an international school there. So pretty much English was your main language always. Mm -hmm. Yes, in school as well. And I think that's also important that it's an international school, a lot of money privately funded, but still that means nothing. It means really nothing about the quality Resources. of the uh, counselors, of the students. Um, it was really like shocking to me that they didn't have any resources to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then you were visiting two therapists and yes. you found one in German that you spoke English or how exactly it was? Yeah, so then I, this German therapist, I ended up not um, going with and went with the therapist that spoke uh, English, but I would mainly speak English and she would sometimes speak in German as well, which is also really interesting in the co uh, course emotion cognition behavior. We're talking about cultural differences. And I mean, come on, I'm talking English and she's talking German and we're trying to connect the same dots. It was very interesting, but this therapist was definitely more of a friend type of thing. It's really hard to find a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And it had to be under insurance. My parents were not going to pay for it. And on waiting lists, filling out forms, it was a painful process. So I just stuck with this therapist for um, a long time until I moved away when I was 18. So I maybe yeah. saw her when I was uh, 15. <laughs> and then I just kept seeing her throughout the years, but it was more of a conversation, definitely more of an unprofessional therapist, mm -hmm. uh, taking phone calls during a session wow. and things like that and talking was about her life. Um, no, I, it, she was she was a like an adolescent youth um, clinician, and she also worked together with a neurologist. But she was very smart, very well educated, um, but it was just not therapy yeah. it was talking and the only really thing that was important to me that came from that is getting on medication I'm on acetalopram which is an SSRI and getting my diagnosis which was I had anxiety and depression and that was really the main part that really helped me mm -hmm. yeah. and what was that shift so when you were at 15 that you were diagnosed um, 16. 16. So I started therapy and then after we went through some processes, um, I got the diagnosis, but once again, I feel like, it, although I feel the diagnosis is correct, it was not in a way, it was, it was filling out forms as well. And, um, that was really it. And from then I got on 10 milligrams and then up to 20 and that was a really hard process to shift onto taking medication because you go through your most suicidal period mm -hmm. when taking SSRIs. And you're going to tell that to a 15-year-old bullied in high school. Yeah. And it, it was a lot, but it was definitely for the better. Yeah. And now you're very good for that, right? You're, it, Since it was just 
since you started like using SSRIs it's improved or like what helped you in a sense or just age as well well for me it's just the low the lowest is higher it's very hard to explain but when I dip into really depressive periods it's less than it was before Mm -hmm. and it's less dangerous for myself Um, it's definitely still something I'm trying to understand because when you go on medication once you're 16 till now, I don't really know myself without it. And I don't know how to handle myself without it. So there have been times I forget it in luggage and things like that. And you really feel it. Um, and it's scary because I haven't experienced that since I was 16. So you're kind of dependent on it. Um, and how old are you now? I am 20. 20. So you were using SSRIs uh, continually for yes. four years yeah and I know it's a hard question probably when if you're planning to start uh, stop at some point try to do yeah try to live without it um, I think this question is, is actually brought up a lot especially with um, my mother um, who is very much against taking medication and um, but I really do think it, it helped me and I used to be in the perspective that I have a chemical imbalance Some people take insulin every day. I take this every day. I need more serotonin. Mm -hmm. And I definitely still feel it's important, but, and I wouldn't mind taking it forever, but I would like to know what I am like without it. Um, I definitely have a very positive experience in the fact that I don't feel like a zombie or any of these things, but I still want to know. And I want to know that I can make it without it. Even if it would be better, I want to be able to be more free in that way because I also am really paranoid about drug interactions and things like that. Taking things like psychedelics um, would be pretty dangerous. And I already, I also take birth control. I already feel that that's a little scary to have two things. And then if I take an aspirin on top of that, it's already a lot going on. So I think just for the peace of mind, I'd like to know but I'm not super desperate to get off. Yeah, but I think also, because I, I share this a similar experience because I'm also taking SSRIs right now for a different reason. For me, it's for ADHD. And I was thinking a lot about this, how we have this prejudice of taking medication that is something bad for you. Because I'm really scared. I feel the same. I'm really, I'm really scared to have to take this forever. But at the same time, some, as you said, some people take insulin to, to live. I think there's maybe this wrong idea I feel that is really bad for you taking, but I understand like not wanting to take. But what I think is just with time, you're also 20 years old. I think the more you get to know yourself, maybe you can share something about yourself too, if you like, because the more you get to know yourself, the more you find ways to Manage. how to work how to work it, yeah. because you also I also actually yeah I have a history <laughs> of SSRIs but not as long as yours uh, so uh during my one of my depression episodes I uh, again I'm di- diagnosed with bipolar disorder and uh, at the beginning I didn't know so during one of my first depression episodes I actually was put on SSRI as well on uh, uh, antidepressant and it worked but at the same time, exactly, I haven't felt myself. Mm-hmm. So it just, uh, it kind of helped me to survive the deepest of the deep, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't like the feeling. I 
really wanted to get out of it. Plus, uh, when I'm looking back at it, it actually triggered probably one of my <laughs> manic episodes, hypomanic episodes. Um, but again, yes, yeah, and I mentioned, yeah, right. right now I'm managing without medication, no medication, but yeah, uh, my first depressive episodes uh, were around 24, 25 years of age, and now I'm 36, so I kind of, you know, I learned by trying and error what's working for me, what's not, but it was a long journey, yeah. and now I know, yeah, what not to do to go into very very deep or into very very low uh sorry high because in the end it's actually not good for me but again there are people who yeah. uh, are using medication it works for them and it's different for everyone yeah so it's just everyone should decide for themselves yeah it's a very personal journey and it needs to be destigmatized in the way that there needs to be a balance obviously there is um hyper prescription like there's over prescription yeah, um but there's also a lot of stigma and a lot of scared that it's going to be over prescription mm -hmm. so i think it's just a personal journey for everybody and i was lucky that the first thing i uh, took when it came to traditional medication um, did work for me but some people have to go through tons of doses and tons of different combinations and that's okay and not everything's going to work at the start and if it doesn't then you find different ways yeah and you try more and more and more and i think part of this journey just cycling back what we talked about finding a therapist i think this insurance system kind of traps you into someone that you're not necessarily click and i personally feel that a therapist has to be someone that you built this trust relationship and then you can share and then eventually maybe one day that's for you you can taper down your medication and find other ways and this person will help you but yeah I think this on the side is very important to find a good therapist is unfortunately maybe health insurance don't it's one of the things that right now we cover in the course, right, as well, that, uh, yeah, the, uh, having a bad therapist can actually just basically block you from the progress, yeah. from making the progress. You just shut down. Or accepting you... certain treatments. Because yeah, also exactly. treatments are individual for people as well. Totally. And as we said in our course, different cultures as well mm -hmm. will not want to have certain treatments or lean towards other things, maybe not therapists or counselors, but healers mm -hmm. or spiritual and it's all valid because it has to be because it needs to work for the individual itself it is individual experience in the end yeah and i know so many people that say i know i had a horrible experience with therapists i had a, one of my best friends i had a couple of down, bad yeah, experiences until she, said she I sat found, down for yeah. two years just her talking and she didn't really get anything out of it so it's really it's a tricky experience and i think that's a part of a good treatment i think to have a good therapist that you can trust and hopefully everybody have the opportunity because unfortunately i think the insurance system doesn't necessarily find you the, or you cannot choose really who you want to be with i mean because um practically it costs a lot of money to go yeah. through different treatments and to different therapists and it's also just exhausting for a person yeah. but you need to keep trying i i although i only had um, this one therapist for a long time I, I i tried everything i did um homeopathy i did light therapy i was offered neurofeedback and you know i i really wanted to be open but i, I ultimately i didn't believe it and if you have 
things like homeopathy, you need to believe it for it to work. And if I'm just yeah. rolling with it because I don't want to have to deal with my therapist, mm -hmm. it's just a waste of time. Yeah, totally. And what did help you? Because you, you said that right now you are not, uh, yeah, let's say doing it. Yeah, um, maybe not that often, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think um, I definitely want to emphasize the fact that some people do get over it completely and that it's a phase in their life as the typical uh, teenage, you know, little moment of theirs. But um, for a lot of people, it's serious and more of a lifelong, I, I view it as an addiction in some way that I'm always going to be thinking about it when something goes wrong. Maybe more, maybe less, but it's gonna be something that I will feel like will be in the back of my mind um, for the foreseeable future. So although I, um, I also feel like I, find it hard to consider myself ever recovered. Um, how long do I have to be clean to just check it off my list or things like that? And does one relapse mean that I am now not recovered anymore? It's a very difficult question, but um, I feel like I'm in a better place now. I feel like there's a lot more I can do and the more I can try, but things that helped me for it's, so the medication definitely mode lowered, hired my low, <laughs> made it less extreme. But it's also just, I think people in general, as much as it's bad to say that like, oh, you know, my friend or my boyfriend helped me out of it. No, they don't help you out of it, but they help you learn things about yourself mm -hmm. and have empathy for yourself. Because it's also a lot to do with self-image mm -hmm. and to do with because if you don't love yourself, or if you do, why would you hurt yourself? So it's a lot of do self-esteem and things like that. Breaking away from my parents, not that they caused anything, but the fact that I'm learning how to deal with things on my own. It's not this, the only, because before I felt like the only reason I wasn't hurting myself was to protect other people in my family, to hide it, to make it look like I was okay. So I did other things that were less like, uh, obvious. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just in some way growing up, but I also want to definitely emphasize you can't just grow out of it. <laughs> Maybe some people do, but um, I don't know. It's a continuous process of every day things. forever. Yeah. I think it's a, like at life in general, right? You have to. I think like finding people, finding empathy, generally the journey of like accepting yourself and finding things you're passionate about is definitely really important because when you go through depression you stop caring about anything that you used to be interested in so finding those things again finding new things and you know sometimes things stop working and then you just need to find a new thing yeah. so it's it's like a reboot yeah yes and uh, have you tried something like mindfulness or maybe like, you know, this self-acceptance? It's also a lot of these things because, as you mentioned, uh, during adolescence, we struggle with this a lot, as we learn as well. And um, I definitely can relate to things that you just don't like yourself. I mean, deeply. And you actually sometimes thinking how other people can even talk to you because you're a horrible person or something like that and um you need to learn how to live with this feeling 
So I'm just curious if you like talked about this kind of things. Maybe for you it was different, but uh, if you talked about this physiotherapist or you found a way, maybe through art, because I know that you're also uh, yeah, drawing. And I, when I just saw, I told, I mean, it's just so amazing. And she said, yes, but again, everything has another coin, I guess. Maybe you kind of said, okay, but at least I can draw something beautiful. I don't know how it is, but can you maybe explain what was your way to, yeah? I think, I don't know. It's really difficult because I, I, I don't want to consider myself that I found the magical way because I, I haven't. And um, I think mindfulness is still something I would like to explore, especially I have a lot of body image issues. I want to address that as well. And I completely relate to this deep self-hatred. Um, that I feel like I'm more just trying to ignore than maybe addressing it. But I definitely, art is very interesting to me because sometimes it felt more of like a, an outlet, but maybe in a negative way. I would, I actually, this might be a little bit dark and graphic, but I, I did blood art for one point. So, um, and posted a lot of dark art and it was in that way more of like getting my feelings on paper, but mm -hmm. not actually processing them. It just looked like a really dark mess. Um, but then afterwards, I think where really art became kind of central for me accepting things is I did um, IB art. So it's the, my last two years of high school, I did IB with the International Baccalaureate and I did higher level art. And I decided that I wanted to create something vulnerable and specifically uncomfortable for me to talk about. I wanted it to be scary to stand up there and have to explain my art. Mm -hmm. So I did um, a sculpture of hands turning into molds of my medication because I felt like, was this something I never told anyone because I didn't want it to become my identity. So this was kind of a way for me to express mm -hmm. this, me coming out and saying, yes, I am on antidepressants. And it does make me feel like it's a part of me, but it's not. Mm -hmm. I also did a piece about um, another mold of a hand with a pinky off of it, where my mother suffered uh, a pinky injury from her boyfriend. And it was something I was trying to process. And I made for her, I covered it in gold. And I said, you know, trauma doesn't make you. Mm -hmm. So all these really uncomfortable stories and lessons I've learned. I had a big barbed wire sculpture, massive, and I had a performance art piece where I would touch it and red paint would come on my hand, but then I would take a bandage and wrap the barbed wire <laughs> because I'm showing that I'm caring for the thing that might be hurting me. So it's this whole like hurt people, hurt people in a, in a deep way, I guess. So all these pieces were really important to me and had like a lot of self-discovery but I never got to have my exhibition. Well, you will, when you <laughs> will, because Corona, right? Yes. We're gonna do here at the Wu, and unfortunately. No, um, it was here, right? No, no, because it was for my high school. Oh, so, okay. um, but it was because of Corona, right? That's yeah, because of Corona, oh, okay. there was no exhibition. I mean, I didn't have exams, I didn't have any of it. So it was all set up. Mm -hmm. I think like one or two people, like of my teachers came because the school was shut down, but it was still a really important experience. And if you ever go to my apartment, I still have some of them up framed with little exhibition texts on them. So I think 
but I also think I've evolved in some way. I might want to create something new. But you are, because your art, that, the ones that we go and see, it's so beautiful and everybody gets very mesmerized. I was the one who asked you to paint something <laughs> for me and it was really beautiful what you created. So maybe one day you have the chance to show everything. I think it's part of your story and I think it's nice to express your feelings into art, you know? And I'm sure a lot of people would. Especially that you're capable of it because I cannot I know, do exactly. anything. <laughs> it was more about sharing it for me. I definitely um, am very uncomfortable with anybody complimenting any of my art because I could go into a whole reason why I feel like I'm not. And maybe that's something I also need to address. But it was more about the idea that I was somebody could look at something and I, I wanted them to feel a little bit uncomfortable as mm -hmm. well. They want me to feel uncomfortable, but then we would all, it's artists have type of feeling. Yeah. And then we would feel something and we would walk out and be like, wow, I just shared something yeah. uh, with somebody. I think that's what this podcast is for me as well. Yeah, just yeah. sharing yeah, things, so listening, learning. And I know this is just therapy for me. Yeah. This is really just processing things. <laughs> yeah. And I think also yoga. I think you should share that part because we met when we met. I think that was a very, it, it was a different person, I feel. So I teach yoga on a weekly basis and I invited Claire to come. And how was it for you? Well, I think I'm definitely still in the depths of my yoga journey because it was a real experience as somebody who really feels a lot of um, low self-esteem about their body to do something physical um, and around other people so it was lots of anxiety at first lots of really laying in shavasana and being <laughs> completely overwhelmed but then i just really got into the idea of just feeling your own self and your own body and your own space and progressing and learning things but um, I definitely still feel like I need to love how I look doing yoga because that's a big thing that I feel the perception of yoga is a lot of really fit, yeah. skinny people. And I feel I don't fit into that. So when doing it in a room full of mirrors, it's like absolutely horrible to because mm -hmm. I can't really feel and concentrate on myself and go through all those thoughts and breathe and clear my mind if I feel so paranoid about how I'm looking. But again, is this thing, as I say, like every day forever, it's a, it's a process where you learn to find that space inside of you. And I can tell how different you are from the first time we did it, that you were totally in your head, kind of angry, and you stuff it up, you kept going. It's a process. I think it's very, I really like seeing how much you evolve. I think yoga is very much learning how to live with yourself, mm -hmm. which is terrifying. I feel like I'm always uh, around at least one person, especially because I feel like I'm always in a relationship. So when am I ever really alone, sitting with myself and dealing with well, everything? <laughs> yeah, but it's a process. I'm very proud of how much I've seen you change. It's really. also important to address because as you mentioned, people quite often hide these things and like just in a, a corner and never address like, you know, how you really feel, right? So if there's shame around it in society, you're going to feel shamed yourself. Yeah. You're not going to want to really address it. And I think that's like the 
basis of self-harm as well for some people coping and just addressing it in a physical way your emotions it's out of the way it is something you just do and forget and just you're pushing away your emotions into something physical mm -hmm. so addressing that is really the the core and what would you have liked to what attention would what would be the right thing if you see someone that maybe that's an advice i guess or yeah, you mentioned that you have a list of not to do, maybe and what to do. Maybe you can share again from your yeah, experience. So I feel like I have a big thing on what not to do, but so maybe I can start with that mm -hmm. and then um, go into the things that maybe would be important. I do have to say, like, it's different for everybody, but some definitely things not to do are um, there's a big misconception of equating self-harm to suicide. So that is also in the DSM, it is non-suicidal self-injury. Yeah. So although it can be like comorbid, it is still not the exact same thing. So that's just a misconception. Um, don't touch scars or stare at them or wounds or injuries and things like that. Um, uh, really harmful comments would be just like, why would you do that in like an aggressive way? It is very hard for people to understand, and I, like, I see that. But to really ask somebody that is also really personal, mm -hmm. and it is usually not done in an empathetic or in good faith. It's done in a way where you're just outraged by the fact, because it is against human nature. If you think about it, we want to survive. Yeah, uh, we want to be healthy. Other things like definitely promising asking somebody to promise never to do it again just like with any addiction not gonna work just gonna create a rift in your mm -hmm. friendship or relationship and it's just it just makes people hide and not want to yeah. talk about it um i've had a lot of if you cut i'll cut definitely not <laughs> never um does it work and also is harmful to you yes. so that is also not good any kind of referral to it being a phase or things like that although it can be or also referring to it being an attention seeking thing so dismissed in some way right? yes once again it can be and i i want to emphasize the fact a lot of people think that if you self-harm for attention it's like not valid it's different totally different but those people need help <laughs> of course you still need help if you are doing things to your body for attention um, but that is also a big misconception and i heard a lot of things in school that is the main insult the attention for what are you trying to do because mm. but all the attention you get is completely negative and destructive yeah. so it really doesn't make sense um, just generally treat the people with love, care, and empathy, <laughs> the basic things, like not to stare or touch at anything, to maybe in a private moment with somebody you feel like you're connected with, to ask them if they want to share something. Now, it's obviously going to be really different with teenagers and adolescents who are maybe in danger um, in conjunction with suicide or things like that. That is where it gets really difficult. You want them to come to you and you want them to share things because if you push, 
they are closed closing off, completely closed Shut off down, yeah. create the environment but there's going to be a point where you might have to step in and that's where the school had a policy that if you hurt yourself or other people they have to tell your parents mm -hmm. and that's really scary so i think as a friend or as anybody if there's not a rule like that think about familial context because for me personally my parents knowing created more of a rift and more of a like destructive environment mm -hmm. than anything so it escalated even more yeah it's just knowing you have to be empathetic and no context and you can ask someone and you can try to get them to see why they need to have help in a very soft and empathetic way but at the end of the day yeah i was forced to get help and in some way it was good but it also really can be traumatized it, yeah and it if you don't want help it's not going to work very well mm -hmm. but once again if you're a young adult like if you are a child you might just like with anything right force have to force them to go to the doctor and things like that yeah. but know that in those moments you might lose a friendship or two and you might create bad relationships and you just have to weigh if you think that it's worth it mm -hmm. And how are your relationship with your parents now comparing to that period? Exactly the same. Okay. <laughs> well, in some so way. It's complicated. Yes, it's complicated. And a lot of the times, especially that generation, if we don't talk about it now, think about Imagine. generations before and the misconceptions That's and the, especially because I think there is an increase in at least seeing people self-harm, especially with the internet and media and all of these things. So I had my father's side, which is very, we're not gonna talk about it. I better never see it again. I'm going to be visibly upset that my baby girl would do this to herself, which is understandable, but the there's leading with empathy and there's leading with aggression. Mm -hmm. And with my mother, it was also more of a personal thing to cry about it herself, make it about her, and very much against things like medication and stuff like that, where she would tell me, you know, what are you going to look like in your wedding dress with those scars? Okay, not uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this is one of these questions. Definitely, there's still a lot of her just rubbing them mm -hmm. or buying me creams or things mm -hmm. like that, which yeah, it's just about ignorance. You don't know about it. Yeah. You're just going to not have that same type of yeah. sensitivity. That's why I feel I'm impressed because you're so young and I am I'm 34, Virginia's 36. And when I when we study together, they go, Oh, I I learned this in high school. So you guys learned so much more than I used to learn back in high school, but then we're still not talking about mental health. We still have a lot of kids struggling with really serious disorders. And I think the education system and parenting, we should be very more open mind to talk about these uncomfortable things. And then just being open to learn. Yeah. Like, even yeah. if, let's say, my parents didn't know about it, maybe they go to a therapist themselves, have the yeah. therapist look at things, talk to your child, try to understand. Stand, not an aggressive way tell me why but you know if something's going on yeah 
give them the space. And if you have the space and the trust, they will come will, to you. They will. They yeah. will. Sure. yeah. And then just like for us to kind of close down a little bit is, I know what is your journey into psychology? Because I think it's also linked to this. Definitely. I think the entire, my, all of my experiences, I was always very into psychology and uh, asking people things and interested in people. I just love people and listening to people. But then going through these dark experiences, going through different therapists and medications and this whole journey of really meeting a lot of people that didn't help made me want to help people, <laughs> made me really like, I feel like I provide a unique perspective to have that exact same empathy. Because I thought all of these therapists looked at me like they had no idea mm -hmm. what was going on. But I feel like maybe I can look at somebody and they will feel understood and they will feel heard. Especially adolescents, right? Yes. So you wanna do? yes, I'd love to go into more of the clinical perspective with adolescents. I just want to, in any way, shape or form, be, be with the young person and give them the space. Yeah. And I think it's relatedness. We are, the, the field of psychology need more black therapists, for example. So you need people that experience what you experience and went through what you went through. Because if you can relate, not that you cannot help, but I think you bring something else to help. And yeah, I think that would be really good for you. It's a very interesting field. Again, maybe like uh, that the course that we are right now doing, right? That you need to speak the same language yeah. as your... Uh, client patient and build this connection so yeah you yeah. want to feel understood and feel like you don't have to explain everything and i feel like although my experience is very specific um self-harm depression but i also feel like in that way i can relate to a million other destructive things mm -hmm. like addiction and eating disorders and i can tap into a lot of that yeah. because i just know what it's like in some way shape or form so, any final notes yeah yeah any final notes anything else you'd like to address i think it's just a never-ending conversation generally mental health we just need to talk about it more talk with people with empathy and listen and understand and know your context know your space where you're wanted feel people out and yeah. just be and willing to learn and let's talk more open about uncomfortable things in a kind empathetic way talk about self-harm i think the more non-judgmental yeah less judgmental the more we put it out there i think less people would suffer hopefully that's the idea well thank you so much thank you guys great. for listening such a rich and thank you for sharing yeah. yes thank you so much thank you for listening to today's podcast if you enjoy please don't forget to follow and subscribe. You can also find us on Instagram at psychologyinsideout.podcast where we update our followers on upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening and until next time.